Welcome to Emerging Franchise Brands, the podcast that introduces you to the visionary founders of America's fastest growing franchise opportunities. We'll also hear from industry pros as they share insights on what it really takes to achieve the elusive milestone of 100 plus locations. I am your host, Frank Fumi, founder of i9 Sports, and my 20-year journey from inception to acquisition has given me a unique perspective on how to succeed in franchising. Join me as we welcome today's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Emerging Franchise Brands podcast. On today's show, I have a very special guest. I have a dear friend, Joe Matthews, from the Franchise Performance Group. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Frank. So nice to see you again. It's been a while since we've known each other. I yes. Think, uh, 20 years, right? Just about 20, 20 years. years. Yeah. So just a little color on the background and how you and I met. Early on in my days of I-9, the only thing I had going for me was franchise sales. Everything else was kind of a mess. Infrastructure-wise, staffing was a little bit of a mess. Franchisee consistency of running the operation was a bit... Um, <laughs> bit of a mess. Uh, we, don't, we didn't have much of a marketing plan. And I, so I go to Hollywood, Florida. I go to an IFA event and you were one of the speakers there. And the topic you yeah. were talking about, okay. if you recall, was franchise sales. The one thing I had actually working well. I go that sitting in- one trick pony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I go sitting in this franchise sales uh, discussion. The one thing I have working for me at the end of the event, I'll never forget, I you were a stranger to me, but I was I was totally bought into what you were telling Telling us as a group, you I, I knew that you were an expert in the industry. And I think I grabbed you and Joe and I said, Joe, I know we haven't met yet. My name is Frank Fumi. I'm the founder of a, a young company called I9 Sports, and we're going out of business fast. I need your help. It's pretty much not the conversation. <laughs> so yeah. uh, why don't why don't you share a little bit about your background though in franchising and how you even got there? Because you have quite the colorful franchise background. I did. I gotta go all the way back to the beginning. So, you know, nineteen eighty-five, I was an art major in college and <laughs> in my junior year i drew a picture i looked at it and i just said yeah what are you kidding you know i didn't want to be the uh, struggling uh poor poverty sidewalk artist so i did the hurry up offense and got my degree in marketing but the reason i i talk about art is because at my core i would say that's who i am our artists look at things through a particular vantage point which i'll get into in a second and then i learned business and business as another vantage point. So when I look at problems in franchising, you know, I can I have two set of prisms and that's kind of helped me succeed. Artists have a really good idea of they don't take their eye off the hole. So they would say the whole is actually different than more than the sum of the parts. In other words, you can't describe a Van Gogh in the form of, you know, it's just a bunch of little brush strokes, right? <laughs> right. Add it up, right? No, the whole is different than the sum of the parts. I find that in franchising in particular, that the brand, right, is different than the sum of the parts of the players. So that art background really helped me from a vantage point. And then business people, we're all reductionists, right? Mm -hmm. It's what's the problem? How do you reduce it down to its key, simplest components, and then get it done? But the uh, assumption there is the business, right, mm -hmm. is the is the sum of its parts, right? Absolutely. So, you know, so I think you need both in franchising, but I think the reductionist uh, philosophy is what's prevalent and the, the, the gestalt philosophy or the whole is different, sort of bigger than the sum of parts. Right. I think we need more of 
and franchising. I think one eye has to be on brand. Absolutely. So you get yeah. started with this little company in Connecticut. You become a uh, part of, what's the name of that brand? Did they ever get anywhere? Yeah, yeah. so I went to skip the next town over, the New Haven Register, when there was a such thing, <laughs> Frank, as newspapers, right? I look it in there and I'm trying to find where I'm going to work, you know, uh-huh. apply all this vast marketing experience that I don't have. <laughs> I, I read a little story about it, the local sandwich chain that it wants to be bigger than McDonald's. They had a couple hundred units. They had 300 units. They're making a good run. Okay. They're in about 17 states. So I went down there with my little resume and I said, here, I, I'm a marketer. Do you need marketing? <laughs> and they said, you want to sell a few, you want to sell franchises? And I said, sure. What's a franchise? Well, a franchise is a distribution strategy, uh, leveraging the skills of entrepreneurs. That was your training program. And <laughs> can you start tomorrow? And I said, sure, fine. And that it was Subway. Oh, right. So way. I was okay. there. Yeah. I was their uh, third recruiter. Uh, the first recruiter would have been there about two years. The second was there a month before me. And then I was number three. And there's only 40 employees in the whole building. Wow. You know, so I, I knew Fred DeLuca when he was only a millionaire, right? <laughs> his office his was over here, like around the corner from my QB. Okay. You know, and, and but now what I got, I have no entrepreneurship in my family history, mm-hmm. right? So, what I got out of it was right away after about 30 days where people don't want to franchise, they want their lives to look a particular way, right? Right. And if they could find it in the job market, they would because it's lower risk, mm-hmm. right? I just saw I wasn't really selling franchise. I was delivering really deep, committed personal objectives with the highest degree of probability if people did business with me. I, so where am I going to get this? I, I'll never see this again. So I 30 days into my job, I said, that's all I'm ever going to do. And that way, fast forward almost 40 years, Frank. It's all I've ever done. Wow. Having that background of being part of Subway early on, you got to see things that people would never get to experience. I mean, talk about on-the-job training, right? It was, I mean, there was no track to run on other than McDonald's, right? So right. we were figuring it out as we go. What I saw more than anything is what's the impact on a brand? Mm-hmm. When you inject entrepreneurship into it and just let the entrepreneur be the entrepreneur, like he can't predict this. I don't even think Fred DeLuca, he could predict the size of it. I don't think he could have predicted what he really did. You know, if you look at what Fred DeLuca really did in franchise, not only did he change the way the world eats, mm-hmm. that's the given. How many smaller, lower entry cross franchising and food and every other sector started because DeLuca started Subway? Yeah, true. The ripple uh, effect. He's, he's probably the most important and most impactful person in the history of franchise. Way more impactful, in my opinion, than Ray Kroc. Mm, wow. You know, they just, they, they have always had one eye on Subway. Subway could do it. This is meat between two slices of bread. Right. You know, then I could do it too. Yeah. Right. And just share real quick about Fred's vision that you, when you were an employee, he had this 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 crazy aspiration that you all thought was absolute insanity. Well, what he said okay, was we are going to be bigger than McDonald's. Like it, was an, it, was an, it was a magnificent obsession. I think it was a little misguided in the sense that, right, it wasn't about franchisee profitability. It wasn't about franchise. It was, we're going to be bigger than McDonald's, right? right? But I, my first box of business cards at 400 units uh, said 5,000 units uh, within a nine-year period. And the big <laughs> joke was, when are we going to get new business cards because that <laughs> level of growth? Yeah, if it took us 20 years to get to 400, right. yeah, what's the likelihood you know, over the next nine years we're going to get to 5,000, except that he beat it by three years? Oh, wow. He did it in six. He did it in six years. So he just built the whole, yeah, I was there when it really, when, it, when the thing tipped. 
that's the other thing about franchising I learned is I, I knew what a tipping point looks like because mm. I was right at the elbow, right? When I, I got in at the elbow of the hockey stick and, and watched it fly. Okay. Yeah, so I, And I do see that with every national brand, they all hit a tipping point when they were emerging growth, which is your conversation. Well, yeah. So what takes yeah. people to that tipping points? And so many don't get there, right? 84% of all franchisors don't even get to 100 units. Over your experience, Joe, how do they get to that? So first thing I think I learned about franchise, which is key, and you, you, you know this being a franchisor, is that franchising is a business unto itself. Right. Right. So you've got, got to be masterful in two models. So you got to be masterful in the consumer facing model, which I thought you were in I-9. I think uh, like when I kind of tell I-9, you really knew uh, how to read market demand. And I think you were working on the delivery, but you heard the market, right? Right. So, so one would be yeah, the consumer facing model. And then second is you got to be brilliant as a franchisor, which is a separate and distinct business than the consumer facing model. So it's funny, if you read even the definition of the franchise or Frank, it talks about a, an agreement between an entrepreneur or a license between an entrepreneur and a brand to do business, mm. right? So we don't even have good definitions about right. what, because I would say that's the last thing a franchise or is, is a license, right? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Or a, li- a franchise is a license, you know, because you know, they can get legal when they're not working. They don't get legal when they're working, right? So we, in, in our company, we define franchising as recruiting training, developing, resourcing, and leading a team of entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. to build a brand. So notice what's missing from that definition, because I saw you nod, and you must Mm -hmm. agree with the definition on some level, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What's missing from that definition is what's the product, right? Right, right, exactly. What are we selling? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. (laughs) So now, can you recruit? Can you train? Can you develop? And can you lead a team of entrepreneurs who can work together uh, to build a brand? Uh, I, th- I think I've worked every industry in franchising except for hotels because I just stay with, I stay in franchising, which is how I defined it. Let's yeah. start with that first step. Let's talk about recruiting since that's, uh-huh. of course, if you don't recruit, you don't have a franchise system, right? Initially. Is that not the expertise of, you, of your business, of the franchise performance group? Yeah. Right? That's where I spend most of my time. Yeah. So I'm pretty well-rounded, but I would say I'm best known you know, in, in franchisee recruitment. So let's talk about today. What's going on in franchise recruitment? So I think we're back to uh, the old philosophy of sales. I, I think, so if you're asking me, like, go back to the definition of franchise, would be recruiting, right? Mm-hmm. So I see the front part of that as talent acquisition. Like, who's, who are you putting on your team? Uh, but if you go to uh, these events, uh, we're back to sales speak. We're back to, I think, putting sales guys in those roles. And we're back to looking at, you know, building the brand as a transaction, you know, instead of a match, right, between capital aptitudes and skills and applying that to the role of the franchisee in the business as a predictor of success. Yeah, I think we really take a, uh, I think we're going backwards as it relates to that. Mike. Why did that happen? How how could that happen? Well, I think there's, number one, I think there's a supply and demand disequilibrium. Right. Mm-hmm. We talk about why don't all, yeah, the, there was a question I didn't fully answer, which is right. why are there so many emerging growth franchisors that they'll make a Trump? Right. 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 So, Frank, do you know how many new business starts there were in uh, 2022? How many? Five million. Five million applications for new businesses. Do you know how many new franchise starts there were? About 28,000, maybe 29,000. That would include existing franchisees expanding within the okay. same system. Right. Mm-hmm. So, let's assume 
nobody really knows, but let's assume it's half a development as existing franchisees expanding organically because it's a successful brand. That's what it would be, right? Mm-hmm. That means there's only about 15,000 new franchisees a year, right? Come into business. 80% of them buy a, a business of, or buy a brand of 800 or more units, right? So in other words, they want the established brands. They don't want the new guys. They don't right. want the emerging growth guys, right? right. So that leaves... You know, if you look, if there's 4,000 brands and let's call it 80%, which is a little more than that, don't get to 100 units. Mm-hmm. You, know, you math it out. That means there's about 3,200, 3,300 brands going after 3,000 to 4,000 new franchisees that will buy an emerging growth brand. That's one per brand. Wow. The numbers don't work. Right. The, right. the numbers flat out don't work. Right. In any market, economics 101, mm-hmm. right? When there's more demand than there's supply, what happens to price? So how many franchisors are lower in their franchise fees? How many are rolling their royalties? I mean, they're going up, right? To, so they can work with the brokers. So they're actually raising fees. They're, the construction costs are going, everything's going up, mm. right? So it's completely ass backwards, uh, which is, you know, they, they're not looking out there. They should be consumed with how do we de-risk the model? How do we incentivize growth? How do we lower the front end? And for an emerging growth franchise, or if you look at the numbers, because we'll probably get into exit values at mm-hmm. some point in this conversation, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you look at the exit values at emerging growth, that franchisee is worth more to the franchisor than the franchisor is worth to that franchisee, in my humble opinion, mm-hmm. often, mm-hmm. right? They should be incentivizing sure. these guys to come in, right? But it's not occurring it's not at occur- any any meaningful level. But yeah. the other big trend we're seeing too is now these PE firms that are coming in, they're creating platforms, these portfolio brands out of sometimes out of thin air. It wasn't even like it was five years ago where you needed to hit like a 5 million EBITDA before they'll be even interested. Now they're right out of thin air starting, you know, a platform. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, but most of them are coming and they're looking, they're, they're trying to, they're spinning out a brand that one to two million in EBITDA. I'm sorry. The big economy, like you said, was originally five million. Then I've seen it go down to about two million. We're the I'm talking about the established players like the Princeton, uh, Thompson Streets, et cetera, and so on. But yeah, you know, th- then yeah, you know, they're dipping lower once you know they're bolting on these brands. As long as it's a similar with you know something complementary to the platform, sure. Um, but they're professionalizing franchising, from what I can tell. My experience is most of my clients are paybacked. You know, so I would say. Um, uh, the entrance of PE into the marketplace, even though it's making people greedy and some, some sometimes stupid, mm-hmm. I say it's unbalanced. It's professionalizing franchise. It's been a good thing. Yeah. You think it's something that's been like a long time coming? Professionalizing franchising, I think, has been a long time coming. Yeah. You know, like if you, if you really, we, we had this conversation a little bit off air, right? Mm-hmm. So you had I 9 Sports, right? So you had a business format that if somebody followed your step by steps, Okay, the logical outcome was going to be a vibrant business, almost certainly. Franchising is never done for the franchisor, which franchisors do for franchisees. There's no franchisor model. Show me the paint by numbers. Show me the book. Show me the course, right? Show me the academy. Show me any of that. Doesn't exist. Never mm-hmm. existed. I think with uh, with PE, they're coming in more and they're creating their fr- their own franchisor platforms, which is what largely didn't exist. Sure. And also at the same time, maybe it's also going to save that uh, that statistic about the number of franchisors that come in franchising and get out of franchising without you know without being around long. Well, that's that cottage industry consultants that uh, seemingly uh, when they do their 
feasibility study never has a negative. You never hear it. Hey, you know what? What you really should do is not stick with your model. <laughs> you never yeah. hear that. Yeah, no. Yeah. So I, as long as those attorneys and consultants exist and they're in the business of setting people up as a franchisor, that's going to exist. It's about 250 to, and maybe it's a 350 new brands come out every year, every year, like clockwork, except for maybe COVID. Yeah. But, but it doesn't increase demand, does it? No, it doesn't. And franchise recruitment though is a, is the primary reason I would imagine why a lot of these franchisors don't really get going. There's right? a capitalization issue. And then also there's a demand issue. They want the bigger brands. Right. So then what do they do? They sell as hard as they can, right? Cause they got to, most of these guys, they got to, you know, they got to monetize their mm -hmm. investments, but it's always at the expense of, right. You know, the franchise candidate instead of with them. And if you really think about it from an investor standpoint, right? Can we can you and I agree that generally more times not smaller brands are higher risk? Sure. Because they don't have the track record, right? Absolutely. It's like a stock, and right? Then, yeah. And then the smaller brands generally don't produce the returns of the bigger brands, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're an investor, right, why should I go with the higher risk and lower return? Right. It makes sense. Like, right. Why would I do that investment? Except that they don't look at it like an investment. They, sure. they look at it like a transaction. Right. Right. So you got a lot of fraud of franchisors. Don't they don't even emerging growth. They, what does not consume them is how do I produce a better return than the big guy? How do mm -hmm. I de-risk the model? How do I incentivize e either organically or even artificially? Right. Mm -hmm. How do I incentivize a great return? Okay. So if you were a yeah. founder of a, um, an emerging franchise and you wanted to compete with the big boys, what are some of the, maybe a couple of key aspects of, of your business that you'd have to do to, to compete? Well, I, I, what I would do is I drive the front end down as low as possible. Uh, Meaning so, you would reduce, uh, you're talking about, I'd driving. reduce the franchise fee okay. to as low, the lowest point as I possibly can and stay in business. Okay. Cause I understand a lot of franchisors need the revenue line, right. To keep, keep the, lights, the on. lights on. Yeah. Yeah. So what I might do is uh, do a balloon payment and, and I would bake in performance right there. Like I look, you don't owe me the money unless these things happen. Okay. But if these things happen, then I want, yeah. and can we both agree? I earned the money and right. So stroke the check. I would probably uh, stair step royalties as a buffer, right? We worked with a franchise where one time it's the sales in a very crowded space. If sales weren't X, royalties were 1%. Year two, if they weren't Y, royalties were 2%. Year three, if they weren't Z, then royalties were 3%. And then we, can, we got the buyer to agree. Look, if you're not hitting decent numbers by year three, can we both agree it was a bad investment decision? Right. You know, then we'll just have you exit. But what, what, one of the things I learned by sitting in the valuation meetings, though, Frank, is that you can offer these incentives and royalties. It reduces cash flow. It doesn't reduce equity. Because mm. when a franchisor buys the, or when a private equity firm buys the business, as long as those royalties melt, they'll give you the enterprise value of the full royalty stream and model it forward. So you're not really losing anything other than the cash flow. So I think franchisors, I think, run the business sometimes, especially emerging guys with maybe a little bit too much attention uh, to immediate cash flow and not enough attention uh, to enterprise value. Right. And the thinking, yeah. obviously more short term, again, back to trying to keep the lights on, right? That's yeah. It's because they probably didn't have the right capitalization in the first place. And they see what the big guys are doing. So they have these huge aspirations. I'm going to get to hundred units in, you know, three years or something crazy. I know we're going to do it on a shoestring. And I watched the, the episode of MacGyver that shows me I could do everything with duct tape, WD-40 and shoelaces, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. so that, that they try to run a business that way. 
away, they would they would tell a franchisee under no circumstance to it, right? Mm. So they don't even follow their own uh, winning formula success. Yeah, right? Just, and yeah. the winning formula too is culture. And so I think we should yeah. talk about that because when you came in to help me back in 2005, that was sort of an issue for my company. I had some people that had experience in running sports programs. So they were part of my business before I even franchised. So I did yeah. probably what naturally what a lot of franchisors do. Well, this was my staff before we franchised. So this is now the team now that we're a franchisor. And I quickly learned that just because they knew how to run the sports business didn't mean that they should be supporting franchise owners. You know, I think that the, the culture really has got to embrace entrepreneurship. And I think that's sometimes, Frank, emerging growth is there's a breakdown. If you think of some of these emerging growth companies, they start out in that chain method, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, the power and the decisions and everything's concentrated at the top and then it trickles down, right? To, right. The, to the management level who are probably have the least decision-making ability to, to satisfy the customer base. And then they apply that. Uh, to the franchising model, thinking, you know, franchisees, you know, would just tell them what to do and they'll do it. Well, anybody who's been around an entrepreneur more than five minutes will tell an entrepreneur what to do. Like, they don't do it. They say, why? <laughs> right. That's the first question. Why do I need to do this? Yeah, right? right. And then they say, excuse me, why? Just right. do what I say. No. But it is the entrepreneurs, though, that that are open-minded and realize that they are not the end-all, be-all, that they do need an outside perspective. Those are the ones that succeed, Right. I think so. I think you can make it based on force of personality and you would be an example of that, right? Mm -hmm. It's just they're not always the best uh, suited for a franchise model. Fr franchising, uh, it's full compromises, right? So yeah, you know, somebody always asks you, what's the, per what's the right business for me? I was going to, my answer is always the same. It's the one you designed for yourself. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's going to work, right? So, you know, franchising for me, it's the buyer build argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could design it. That takes too long. It's very expensive. Or I could just actually, I could buy it, right? Sure. And if I buy it, then there's compromises along the way. It must be adults about it, right? Right. And, uh, but they shouldn't compromise in culture, right? Like mm -hmm. yeah, core values, mm -hmm. that should be an alignment. You shouldn't compromise on that. Compromise on go-to-market strategy. Like the franchisee has got to really embrace the CEO's vision on who, right? How they're going to go to market, what the value proposition is. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, what, the, what do you want the business to mean to the marketplace? Because if you're not in alignment on that, then they have no really no purpose of being in the brand. Sure. Getting buy-in yeah. for as an entrepreneur though could be a let's face it, it's a little bit of a challenge. Realizing that when you're an entrepreneur before you franchise, you get to make the final decision. You just get to do what you think is best. And as the franchise system grows, suddenly you just can't turn. I like the I used to like to say you can't turn like a speedboat. You have to turn a little bit more like a cruise liner where you have to get buy-in from people. Now there's an FAC involved, there's staff involved, there's just there's more constituents to uh, to get involved in the, in the decision-making buy-in. Yeah, I mean, and, and you got to respect uh, mm -hmm. the investments franchisees are making in the business because they've got risks too, right? Right. And, and even on the emerging growth, when you get emerging growth, some of these, uh, I, I call them listening structures, right? It can be formal or informal, either one will work. Mm -hmm. You know, you just got to know what the franchisees' concerns are. And, you know, they need to be addressed and they need to be considered. Sure. That's their part of the model, right? Right. Yeah. I remember this goes back years ago. You had written a book that talked about the different stages that a franchisee goes through. Remember, it was like the honeymoon period. And I forgot how you, do you remember that? Some of the uh, phases. Yeah. What are some of the names yeah. again? Actually, it's funny. I'm, I'm re- uh, 
free lunch and I just signed a book deal with Wiley. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, yeah, I'm publishing that now. So I, I was just looking at it yesterday. Yeah. So there's the launch. Uh, there's the grind, which is kind of when an entrepreneur demands results. They really don't have the capacity to produce yet just because they, they're used to producing. Right. <laughs> uh, then there's winning when you start really, you have the getting it experience. You start acquiring the skills and acquiring the knowledge and so you can design positive outcomes. Then we call it the zone where uh, it's, you're on autopilot, right? Which is winning is habitual, right? Right. And then, and then the exit. Right. When's it, when's it time to cash out? So it's mm -hmm. kind of those stages. Yeah. I've, I remember reading it. We were, we were out of that, out of that period of that grind. Once you get to able to survive on royalty and not having to sell another franchise to keep the lights on is a life changing moment for every franchisor. That's, that's the, uh, the epitome, right? That seems to be the real difference making inflection point, but we even have a term for that now, right? Right. right. Royalty self-sufficiency. Yeah. Well, you, cause you operate differently. You don't operate out of fear or desperation anymore. You're able to make really good decisions without worrying about where you're next, you know, where the next yeah, it's not a, it's not a, yeah, I would call it a survival mentality. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause when your royalties exceed your, uh, fixed you're going to survive. Yeah. Right. So now it gives you the opportunity to look long. It's kind of like, you know, it's like anything. If you're in a concentration camp or a prison camp and you don't have so much bread, you're, like, you're not worried about where you go to college. Right. <laughs> no, I guess you're not. Just, yeah, you lose your capacity to look long. It's, it's just a human nature thing. Right. You just, just want to know where the next meal is coming from. And yeah, you know, franchisees do it. The franchisor does it. And I think um, one of the benefits of private equity coming in, is taking the brands out of survival and capitalizing. Not only centralizing services, but now we're having access to people because that's, to me, that's what really gets you out of the grind is having the outside perspective or having new voices that you can listen to um, that are part of your growth, right? Isn't that what gets you out of the grind is essentially it's the people. Yeah, I think it's a couple things, right? It's having the experience that you're starting to win, right? Mm -hmm. And that you can design positive outcomes. It's, uh, I find the learning curve in a business, sometimes when you're in that grind, it's a blind curve, right? So I tell this story sometimes about when I was teaching my son how to ride a bike. Yeah, he wiped out a couple of times. The third time he wiped out, he told me uh, if he had a different bike and he lived on a different street and he had a different father, <laughs> okay, then he would be riding his bike, right? And it almost looks that way, right? If I you know, have a different advisors, have a different model, different franchises. In other words, it's all right. going on out oh, there, yeah. right? Absolutely. Right? There's nothing you can do to impact it over here until eventually you can't. And that, I think that's um, some things what Pete brings to the table is that that understanding that, you know, that's simple gap analysis, right? It's going to take in, in the way of people, money and energy and putting those pieces in place, which is really all there ever is to do, right? And the exit as a, as a franchise order that has exited, it wasn't even something that really entered my mind until I got into really my late 40s. And I started thinking, Joe, you know, maybe in 89, you need to take some chips off the table. All of our net worth was kind of tied up in the business. We always put the money right yeah. back in the business. And then you get to a point where the risk of growing the business on my own becomes more dangerous than keeping the it. smart growing. move. Yeah. And That's right. That's it's, right. It's very difficult, though, because the I led my company with passion and heart and desire and thinking I thought it was my purpose in my life, really. And I later found out it was just a mission, one mission of, you know, many missions in life. Yeah, that's right. Tell me about some of your other clients. Like have you, other franchisors that have gone through this, uh, this period that is not really talked about. It's the exit and what, what founders or what franchisors go through. 
you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. It's the word purpose, right? And I think that's the right phrase. It's kind of like you don't want to sell your house and then be homeless, right? Right. Right. Like you, you, you always know which house is next, right? Well, I think when people, founders uh, and franchises, they sell their businesses because a lot of times it's not, it's not planned. They just they get approached, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's planned, but a lot of times it's not. They don't have what's next. Now they'll they'll sign the you know that one to three year contract right to make sure there's a smooth transition, but they they don't always have what's next, and I think it's a sad spot sometimes for founders until they invent what's next, right? Until they yeah. find another uh, purpose, yeah, you know, worth uh, living and working into uh, that's bigger than themselves. Because I think the key is it's got to be bigger than self, right? Yes, always. One of the things you said to me. I put this in my book, Street Smart Franchising, uh, was that you said, and I quote, because I remember this vividly, uh, this business has ceased being a business to me. It's bigger than me. It's a mission. Mm-hmm. You know, and then uh, it just, I remember you didn't use the words, but it basically, you would wake up cold into action every morning. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Like what you didn't have to make decisions. It's almost like the business is deciding for you. The business is pulling you you know, forward into action. I, I think you can only hit so many golf balls if you're an entrepreneur. I agree. I do think pickleball is going to change the equation because I can't get enough of pickle, but <laughs> I could see that make it helping me hang it up. Yeah. yeah. At some point. Yeah. I, I don't know. So even though I planned my exit um, in advance, going back to what you said, I nine sports for me was my purpose was, well, I should say it was my mission. My purpose is, you know, how could I use my creativity? How could I use my experience to impact the lives of others? That was always my overall purpose. But then I had this epiphany one day where I realized, uh, I think my mission changed and I was no longer being fulfilled through that. And I didn't have my what's next. Many of us don't have what's next lined up, but we do know when it's time, time to exit. And uh, in my case, it wasn't that I got approached by PE and like, oh, this is a great idea. Mine was kind of planned out kind of like a year plus in advance. But I can see how founders get caught up in this whole thing where they do get approached. They had not thought of exiting. And now suddenly it's a good idea because they have dollar signs, you know, dancing in their minds. And that's they could regret it, too, because you can only play golf or pickleball for so much. <laughs> or maybe not, according Again, to you. I, that that hasn't been tested yet. Okay. Pickleball hasn't been tested. I can't seem golf. to get it over. Golf. <laughs> golf. Golf has been out there longer. And softball, you by know, the I way, because I did the softball thing. Yeah, and I found softball, out. that's right. Yeah. You started as a softball. Yes, league, sir. I remember right. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the things that's funny when you talk about what's next and purpose. It's, um, you know, Simon Sin- Simsek, Simon Simsek. Sinek, yeah. Yeah, did the power of why. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that was the, lar- at the time, it was the most viewed a TED talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's wrong. I hate to say it. He's because he, there's a presupposition, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that purpose is bigger than self, right? If there's a God, okay, then you were designed for purpose. You're, you're not random, right? Right. And you don't even get to say what your purpose is, right? Any right. more than a toaster gets to say what its purpose is, <laughs> right? Right. So, so yeah, make toast. That's your purpose. <laughs> so it's not an inside, uh, purpose is not an inside out job. If it is an inside out job, like he would assert, then there's really no such thing as purpose. You're making it up. You're just calling it purpose, right? Right. right. It's just personal intention. You can force your will right. on anything, right? Because there's nothing bigger than self, right? It's all made up. Right. So I do think there's a spiritual component I, I think founders need to get faced with, right? You know, it's like, why, 
kind of gets back to why am I here, right? What, totally. what good can I do in the world? Like the toaster, the toaster, all they have to do is examine self, look at their wiring and say, look, I'm not a ballerina, right? That's right. 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 Yeah, I don't look like a ballerina. I don't act like a ballerina. I'm wired like a ballerina. What am I wired like? Huh. Sure. Seems like I'm pretty, uh, pretty well equipped to make toast and right. you know, English muffins and stuff. And that that becomes their purpose, and and that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that's there's nothing wrong with that. I stay in franchise development because that's what I'm good at. That seems to be what I'm wired for. It seems to be what I understand. Sure. You know, in franchising, I could have done other things, um, but it's I just seem to be uniquely wired to do this particular business. So I stay in it. Um, you know, I've been to a lot of Tony Robbins events and stuff, and Tony's been a, Tony's been a huge inspiration in my life for a long time. And one of the things he's always said is, business is a spiritual game. I think you operate differently when you are feeling called. I felt really called, and uh, I was recently at our national convention for I nine. We were celebrating our twentieth anniversary. And I shared with the audience, with our franchisees, I said to them, truthfully, I have not felt like I've been called for many things in my life, but this was one of them. And it's hard to explain yeah. what that what that looks like. It's hard to explain to somebody what feeling called to do something. But equally, I was also called to also leave. Like it just felt like right, even though I fought it. It was almost like myself. I was fighting leaving, going, no, this, this, this shouldn't be. I'm supposed to do this for life. But my felt like my calling was like, you need to move on. Like I'm going in one direction. The business needs to go in another direction and I need to let go. And letting go could be really, really hard when yeah. you think the business is about you. When you actually think you own it, right? Yes. But it's funny, what I like about your business, Frank, with I-9, what you started was, go back to the calling, right? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't have worked. It should <laughs> like, not have, no. It, no, it shouldn't have worked. <laughs> right, right, right. But it did. Oh. And um, it, it was, yeah, I, I just see kind of divine, uh, divine things occurring in, in you and in the business that uh, just, it happened all at the right time, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, and and, it, and unfolded and it took its own life, took a life of its own. It did. That's one of the things I like about branding. It's little ahas. You talk about little epiphanies, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, a corporation is a legal person. That's why if you sue a corporation and that's how you protect your personal lots because the corporation is a person. But, but if we look at a brand as a person, like, great, then what kind of person is it? Right? <laughs> right. Right. Now, what are we designing here? You know, think about I-9, what I liked about I-9, like it was informal. So we knew kind of what was chummy. It was local. I remember when I was in sixth grade, we had gym class and everyone saw I'd be captain. I, I had a pretty good jump shot. So and that was decent in basketball, not great, but mm-hmm. for a playground, I was good enough. Right. Nice. So I got picked captain, but I would always pick the kids. Nobody else would pick first because I didn't care. If I let them, and then and then I'd pass them. I'd throw it over the backboard. Who cares? Like, you know, it's kind of like that episode in uh, in the Wonder Years, right? Where right. They're just like, so they'd be drilling stuff. I remember this one kid, Lee Doopy. Now I grew up in a mob neighborhood. He used to bring a briefcase to class, and he had a crew cut. Whenever we all had shaggy seventy years. This kid was a victim right out of central casting, right? Okay, but yeah, like I felt shoot the ball, Lee. He's like, I can't. I was like, let it go. You know, right. <laughs> You know, he just hit the backboard. He had the thrill of the ball going. It could have gone in, right? But it didn't. But just, well, you know, the thrill of the ball being in there. 
Now, I thought that's what I-9 was, right? You you didn't get the kids from the travel leagues, right? We did not, no, but no, I knew you, that. You want to have fun and run around and play, right? right? I knew that yeah. mom was our customer, though. Where so many leagues went wrong, Joe, is that uh, people that started leagues thought, I need to be in the competitive travel space, but that was a sliver of the market. The other 90% just wanted to play and have fun, like you're saying. And that's, you know, and you were a facilitator of that, right? Right. And it's it is so innocent. And it's so spot on. It's so the reason we, you, you, you let kids be kids, right? Yeah. You know, the, the parents, I remember when I played Little League one time, I was in a game and close play third. I was coaching third base, told the kid to slide, got in there. And then we got pelted with rocks and balls. <laughs> what a rough neighborhood, man. The kid was out. We had to get a please escort home. Little League, right? <laughs> Little League. I was 11 years old. I'm getting hit. I'm dodging bottles, right? <laughs> no, that's not I-9. No, that was actually the reason why I was... I was, I was a little hesitant to get involved in youth sports to begin with. It was, those were the stories that I had heard because I started I-9 before, or I should, I should say I started my own kids flag football league before I-9, but it was before I even had my daughter. So the only thing I knew about youth sports, of course, was my own, you know, background of playing, you know, back in the seventies and eighties. And then yep. of course the things that I saw on the news. So, you know, the hockey dad up in New England choking out the other hockey dad in the stands. Oh, and I remember that. Remember that I'm one? from New England. Oh, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, these are the things that were, like, on my front of my mind when I was starting my own flag football league. I, I realized, though, that this league had to be different. And the reason why I'm bringing up, I'm bringing up I-9 as an example for any aspiring or emerging franchise that's listening to this about why their business needs to be different and to really listening to the marketplace and when I was listening in the marketplace is that people wanted an alternative to what was out there in the market. The market was very fragmented. And I realized that it was not being serviced properly. It wasn't being treated like, like a, a, a business. And people weren't being given what they ultimately really wanted. And the customer wanted was no fundraisers, no tryouts, no drafts. They wanted their kid to have fun. And they wanted a sports program that revolved around their life as opposed to the other way around. Where remember, you know. Right. Mom and dad taking you three, four days a week, you know, that where you lived for the, your sports program. But I think that's where entrepreneurs go wrong is that they don't think about the marketplace so much. They think about what they want. Well, they want to, sometimes they want to dictate what the market should have. Right. You, you see that a lot with like telephone apps, right? You're smart. If you come up with some piece of technology, try to solve a problem. You don't even know you have. Right, right, exactly. But it's so much easier just to listen to the market. The market will always tell you what the market wants if you just not listen. And you can't yeah. fight it. You know, here's here was a huge one that we didn't fight, but we listened. And that was the whole participation medals. Yeah. We weren't for participation medals, you know. That was not. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was not a thing. We had franchisees come to us in advisory council and said, look, I've got moms and dads that are coming to me and their kids are crying that they want a participation medal. Our franchisees were saying, ultimately, this is what the customer wants. My customers are crying out for it. I told my staff, I was like, listen, this is not about us. We don't get to decide what the market wants. We have to right. give what the market wants. And that's ultimately right. how participation medals for I-9 Sports really started. It was listening to the customer. My granddaughter just got her first uh I nine soccer participation medal in uh, oh, Nashville, nice. Tennessee. Re yeah, last uh, few months ago. Yeah, <laughs> my my son in law is a coach at I nine. Oh no way! Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That is awesome. So now, what are you up to these days with Franchise Performance Group? What's uh, what's the latest yeah, and greatest? So still on. So let's say the pie is a hundred percent of our revenues, right? Mm -hmm. So 
in any given year, it's about 20% advisory. So just to help franchisors be franchisors, generally uh, go to market as a franchisor and how to attract more franchisees, make their, their business more valuable to the entrepreneur. Second would be have a digital agency. So we do lead generation. So that would be website design, lead generation content, lead nurturing type content. Uh, and then we also have a team of recruiters that work our leads. And our kind of secret sauce is our recruiters understand digital marketing mm-hmm. and our digital marketers understand recruiting because we keep it in house and we make sure they talk, right? We don't do uh, consumer agency works. So, you know, if our clients go to FPG, you know, it's not a pizza shop going into sink your teeth into this mouthwarming opportunity and make your dough and pizza. It's like, that's crap. You know, right? Right. So we don't do that. Right. So we, uh, we just show franchisors how to attract talent money uh, as an investment manager. How do you think it's changed since COVID? It's harder. There's been a lot of uncertainty in the economy. Started with COVID, then we're starting to come out of it, then change a regime in the White House, not to get political, mm-hmm. but we had an entrepreneur in the White House. Now we don't, mm-hmm. right? So uh, and that's that's creating a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace when entrepreneurs can't predict money freezes. And that's kind of where we are. And start and stop have been for the last couple of years. And then as things become more self-directed, they're, they're entering the recruitment process further, right? They're, so they're more educated by the time they talk to a buyer, which means you better understand digital marketing, you better understand content because the whole buyer journey, like every other buyer journey, is becoming more self-directed. And is it becoming, the sales cycle is it becoming longer, shorter or indifferent? Yeah, good question. Yeah, usually financing kind of drives that. So if it's a lower entry cost business, 60 to 90 days, it's probably typical, just, I mean, a little shorter, but when you layer in financing, you know, with the ROBS and other things, it's usually typical 120, 108 days. It's the uncertainty in the marketplace that's making it, I think, go longer. Right. I've, I've always heard the stat like 10 to 12 weeks is sort of the average sales cycle. At least that's what it was. Yeah, we design, when I'm designing a buyer a buyer investigation or buyer journey. Mm-hmm. I, I, mean, I start with 120 days as my default. We have a resurgence though of sources like trade shows is, are back. Lead generation, like anything, it's it's intersecting the buyer at their point of interest. You know, so it's like, so where are people going who want to buy a business? I mean, right. they're online, right? So most of your dollars need to be focused online. I think um, your trade shows, there's entertainment value, but not, that would be the last place I would put money, not first. Yeah, but it's, they're getting more foot traffic, but you're saying they're just not getting more deals. I don't think they're getting deal flow. Yeah. Maybe they are, but relative to what? You know, they almost were out of existence, right? Yeah. And what about the web portals, the franchise portals? Um, I think I look at portals like pay-per-click, right? So I, I think they, they have a tendency from what I could tell to get people at the very, very top of the funnel. So they're good at grabbing contact information or they grab good at grabbing buyers. Yeah, but it, t- it takes a lot of human capital, mm-hmm. right? To get, yeah. so like if I generate a lead on Google, one to 2% of those leads will close. Facebook might be 0.5, 0.7. The, the portals are like 0.25, which means that 250 to 400 leads to do a deal. And are you seeing more clients going with using an FSO? Versus doing it in house, I would assume so because I yeah we, we, I think we were the first or second FSO twenty years ago, and now there's umpteen million of them. <laughs> yeah, so I think you know, that nobody seems to be struggling. Yes, yeah, so I would assume so. It's a, it, it's an expertise. I don't like how the typical FSO does business, right? So right. the 
you know, there's kind of a yin yang uh, unholy trinity between the kind of the franchisor and the FSO in particular, the franchise sales guy. And, and it's at the expense of the entrepreneur. So it's who can close deals, right? right. So you got the franchise broker sending to the FSO as a deal closer, mm-hmm. not necessarily looking for fit. Yeah. So it's, it's putting people in businesses that I don't think should be in businesses. And then they go for the bigger commission, right? So of let's course. do the three, five or five pack, but they haven't even demonstrated yet one open yet. So Joe, what, what would you say are maybe some of the common uh, traits of your best performing franchise or clients when it comes to uh, you helping sell franchises for them? Well, I think they understand the business they're in, right? So it's kind of, where do they focus? I think franchisors have a tendency to take one of two different cultures. They're even operations focused. So I would put you in that category uh, when you were doing I-9 and then, or a franchise sales focus, right? Where they're consumed with doing the next deal, right? So I would say franchising is a two metric business. And I think the franchisors that grow and have sustainable business models understand that, right? So I would say it's unit level economics. Mm-hmm. You got to get an acceptable return on investment for your franchisee constituency. And that's got to be the norm, right? So the more than 80% of your franchisees have to get the returns they were looking at, or it's a turnaround brand. And then the second piece is the culture piece that you're talking about, right? So, you know, entrepreneurship and the franchisee have to have a seat at the table, right? So totally. there's got to be a franchisee friendly uh, environment. So for me, that's not a command and control environment. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of franchisors default to. It's not a compliance environment like some bureaucratic franchisors would default to. I, I see it. Uh, Frank, you didn't use the term, but that's it's the servant leadership model, right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. Right. Where the CEO is the, is the greatest servant. Uh, and if you serve the franchisee, the franchisee will serve the customer. has been my experience. The, all the franchisor has to do is give is equip the franchisee and let the franchisee do what the franchisees do, right? Which is satisfy the customer. So I would say that's the model and they understand it. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, you've got the, the franchisor exists to recruit, train, develop, and equip franchisees who exist uh, Mm -hmm. to satisfy the customer needs. And and if everybody stays in their lane and performs well, really cool stuff happens and everybody wins. Absolutely. What's What's been your biggest surprise in franchising? Why don't I give you my biggest disappointment? Oh, go right ahead. Because I was part of a massive, uh, I think, a brand failure. Mm -hmm. So there was one of the frozen yogurt brands, right? So we had the second resurgence of frozen yogurt. This time was the self-serve, right? So my client was the last entrant into uh, frozen yogurt, but they had great unit-level economics and great branding. So they looked bigger than they were. Uh, So I knew we could take this thing big, but I, I... I was concerned about everybody getting commoditized because they actually were serving the same product. Everybody bought from the same dairy. So they were literally serving the same product. Really? I didn't know that. They might have different flavors. Right. They might add add some ad things, but they're all buying literally the same base yogurt. So what the the CEO told me was he's going to use the wave of self-serve frozen yogurt to build distribution. Okay. And then what the distribution is built, the franchises, then it's academic. It's what are they eating? Because frozen desserts, it's it's always been a multi-billion dollar industry and people are always eating frozen desserts outside the house. Just mm-hmm. what's your flavor? So we got it from 25 units to 500 units and we did it in five years, I think, open. And unit level economics went from over $700,000 in, uh, in sales to three seventy five dollars because the CEO froze and never pivoted. 
the menu, the, the whole strategy that we professed mm -hmm. to every investor, what we were, what the CEO was going to do, he didn't do it. He froze, and it was uh, they tanked the brand. That made me think, like when I take on a client, I really, really got to trust leadership's going to do the right thing, and that has the capacity, uh, not only the desire but the capacity to pull it off. Because uh, that was uh, that was devastating to, to me. Because I devastated other people too, right? Because I was I, I laid the whole go to market strategy out, sure. assuming all we had to do was execute. No. Killed the golden goose. Because you know, look at frozen desserts is still a vibrant category. You think it'd be serving Italian ice. It could be they're bad to heart. You back to hard pack. You high butter fat type ice creams. You know. Adult milkshakes. Sure. Well, Joe, um, gosh, I could I could do another hour of this with you, but I, I know we have to wrap up and we're going to see each other here uh, soon at a conference. But I want to uh, finish up by asking you this. I do a thing called the tip jar because the franchise community is so generous. You've been so generous with everything you've shared in the past hour. But what would be a piece of advice you would give to maybe an aspiring franchisor? That wants to launch their concept. Yeah, so I would I would start out and say, look, there's a supply demand disequilibrium. That means that doesn't mean don't do it. It means you're gonna have to be a unicorn, right? So, because more than eighty percent of the people aren't really monetizing becoming a franchisor. So, what does it mean to be a unicorn? It's you've got to look from a branding perspective like a national brand already. Mm -hmm. You've got to perform. I like the big guys. You got to have a business model that competes with the big guys. And then you've got to uh, be from a culture standpoint, I think a very collaborative uh, servant leader type from a, from a culture standpoint. And you better be starting with a million to $2 million, right? So people talk about $250,000. That's to get started, right? Right. That's before you recruit your first franchisee. Mm -hmm. But if you're successful recruiting franchisees, you're going to have to build infrastructure pretty quickly before royalties are pouring in. Right. So you can have a million to two million into this thing. It's the long game. You know, you got to be willing. It's not a get which quick scheme. You got to be willing to put in uh, seven to 10 years before you see monetization. Otherwise, you're better off just expanding through the chain model. It might be. Yeah. Franchising is not for everybody, for sure. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I think I surprise people when they ask me about franchising, like, oh, should I do it? And I say, even though I did it for, you know, almost 20 years, I don't think it's right for everybody. There's this there's pros and cons to it. Be right you have to be better at it than you had to be when I was with Subway because there are fewer franchisors. Right. Yeah, there's 350 new guys and they're, and they're rotating out as fast as they're coming in. And you know, you're dealing with 15,000 buyers. And if you need at least 100 units, let's say, mm -hmm. 100 franchisees to have any type of hope at monetization, do the math. Like, you know, that could be 100 year break even. Because <laughs> if you're the average franchise emerging growth guys, one or two, maybe three or four a year, right? So, right. You know, you got to be, you got to fly way, or you got to get your elbows way over the rim on this one. Well, Joe, thank you so much. If if somebody wanted more information to work with you and your company, how can they find you? I just, I would tell them to hit the website, uh, franchiseperformancegroup.com. And uh, we have a pretty uh, robust uh, blog and book section. So you could see exactly how we do business just by, you know, reading our IP. You know, so I'd say the two step and then three sign the form just like every other website that's it i'll reach out to you yeah joe um thank you so much for everything i'm so grateful that our paths crossed when they did and um it's so great to catch up with you and look forward to uh, seeing you soon oh thanks frank i look forward to seeing you tell uh frankie jr and uh and uh, taylor marie and frank and i both have daughters named taylor that's mine's right. in franchising 
<laughs> and then uh, and then 18, I said hello. All right. Tell Tara, I said hello. Look forward to seeing you guys. All right. Take care, Frank. All right. Thank you for tuning into the Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast. For additional insights, guest applications, and to stay connected, visit us at efbpodcast.com. The Emerging Franchise Brands Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of Emerging Franchise Brands, its host Frank Fumi, or Emerging Franchise Group, LLC. Any discussed franchise or investment opportunity requires thorough investigation, obtaining proper disclosure documents, and expert consultation before making any investment decisions. The podcast and its host do not offer professional advice or endorsements, and they hold no responsibility for actions, representations, accuracy, or consequential damages related to the podcast content.